I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm joined today by the architect, engineer, and scholar Lydia Calipoletti. Lydia is an assistant professor of architecture at Cooper Union in New York City and is the author of the book, The Architecture of Closed Worlds. She's also currently the co-curator of the 2022 Talon Architecture Biennial. I've been following Lydia's work for a few years now with great interest. I am fascinated with how she uses speculative projects, alternative pedagogies, and non-traditional architecture to examine the field and the built world. But I've also been interested in how she thinks about publishing this research. She's curated shows, published books, led studio classes and workshops, and given talks. And so I was curious to hear how she thinks about scholarship and then how she thinks about getting that scholarship out into the world. So in this episode, we talk about that. We begin with her early education in architecture and engineering and how despite this building-centric education, she moved away from being an architect who builds buildings. We talk about her idea of immersive scholarship and how she thinks about building audiences around that research. It's really nice to hear how she thinks about bringing her projects, her research, and her teaching together, looking for overlaps and points of connection. If you like this show, I hope you consider supporting it on Patreon. We offer three monthly tiers, $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and $10 for superfans that give you access to all sorts of bonus content like our monthly newsletter, early episodes, full transcripts, and exclusive bonus interviews, all while helping to financially support this show. So if you like scratching the surface, if you would like more of it in the world, I hope you consider joining us on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast for all the details and to help support the show. Thanks for listening. And here's my conversation with Lydia Calipoletti. I want to begin this conversation kind of going back to your early education, actually, um, and and use that to sort of look at the trajectory of your career, which is in preparing for this and thinking about you, I've kind of pieced together a little bit. Uh, You originally studied architecture and engineering while you were in, in Greece, still in Greece, and then went to MIT for design and building technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you, you you then went on to, to Princeton, which we can, we'll talk about in a second. But I want to talk about those first two <laughs> degrees for a second. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in what your interest in architecture was and what that looked like. Um, it's interesting to me that, that both of these degrees involved, you know, engineering and, and building. Is that what you were interested in? Did you think you were going to... Uh, you know, design buildings that were then built in the world. And then I ended up not building. Well, <laughs> which exactly that's my question. I- that's what I want to know about how that happened. <laughs> how did that happen? Well, I kind of fortuitously ended up in architecture. It's not that I was building Lego since I was three um, and knew exactly what I was. And I had a perfect plan of everything. I, um, I was actually much more interested in basketball when I was younger than, um, yeah, it was, it was my favorite thing to do in the world. I was interested in reading quite a bit, uh, before I ended up in architecture. I read a lot of American literature. I was in a school that was in Greece that was an American college. So, um, before that, I mean, my mom was an architect and she suggested mm. it, but I was never really, um, you know, intending to do it as a career. And 
it just so happened that when I entered the school, I was fascinated with all the different possibilities of, you know, I saw architecture as basketball, like moving bodies in space. But it was a very technical education in Greece. We had um, the architecture degree was also an engineering degree. So a large part of the education was uh, doing a lot of courses on concrete and metallic structures Mm -hmm. and uh, um, calculating structures and um, understanding the materiality and the way to um, to realize um, a kind of vision. So that um, aspect, that context of my early education in Greece, uh, in Thessaloniki, which is where I come from originally, was um, was quite at the side of engineering uh, related to math, a lot of mm-hmm. math. Mm-hmm. And I was, I, I loved math. I was, I was uh, very interested in solving problems and it was a kind of good framework, um, which later on in my later, uh, in my early teaching years, all of these skills were very rare in American academia. Um, mm. You know, I, I had to be teaching integrated building studios and um, I knew what the structural capabilities of, of different kinds of uh, building proposals uh, would be, which is um, not something that a lot of my colleagues uh, were familiar yeah. with. And uh, it was uh, a, a kind of fortuitous um, skill uh, that I've inherited from uh, my education in Greece. Um, I, Because of that, I was interested in becoming part of... Uh, you know, building technology programs and learning more about new materials and methods. And and I still have this interest from a theoretical perspective, but MIT seemed like the best place to go for, um, for getting that kind of education. And I ended up in the building technology program at MIT. Um, and a lot of the professors in the building technology program were engineers. Mm. Some were mechanical engineers. Um, others were structural engineers. Uh, one, um, professor that I had, I remember was an expert on submarines and, uh, indoor air quality in submarines. And, uh, one of the things that, uh, and, and my colleagues were also engineers in the building technology lab. So, um, a lot of the things that I ended up writing and investigating from a theoretical perspective were part of a cohort of a group that I was with, uh, mechanical engineers, and they all investigated sick buildings and indoor air quality. Mm. And um, that became a big part of my interest. But at the same time, I met people from the history theory program at MIT and uh, the history of science program. And um, I read Donna Haraway for the first time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I read... Um, you know, text on biopolitics and um, Foucault. And that kind of changed my worldview 180 degrees. And I found all of this kind of opening extraordinarily um, important and insightful. And um, it was, it really opened up the world of uh, technicality to another realm. And it was uh, it was really amazing to see how these two worlds could collide. They still don't, but um, 
I was so enchanted with the possibility of, I, I don't know, like combining the overlapping, the solipsistic view of the theorist that is interested in the advancement of theory alone to the very, very technical aspect of the building technology that have their own methods and ways of operating, mm-hmm. um, which is another kind of solipsism. And um, what these two worlds, the overlapping of these two kind of realms would bring to the table. And um, a lot of my work in uh, later on was, was I think, emerging from that kind of overlap, um, building technology with environmental politics and, and, um, and theory. Yeah, it's. I mean, as you were saying that, I, I was like, "Oh, so much of what you're doing is was like right there <laughs> at the beginning." I, like, I'm hearing it come together as, as you're answering that question. I'm interested in two things, though. Yeah. Kind of quickly about that era. You, you mentioned that your mother was an architect, and that's not something that you had really considered growing up. And I'm kind of curious if if you think her work shaped any of of your kind of coloring of what it meant to be an architect or what an architect does in a way that, uh, you know, you wouldn't have had if you didn't have that background? Well, that's, uh, that's a really interesting and complicated question. <laughs> yeah. because It immerses oneself in the psychology of what they want to be and how much they want to be of what their parents are. And, um, and I guess I was one of these kids that did not really want to be <laughs> what uh, my parents were. But um, in many ways, <laughs> I am an architect, right? I have a professional architecture degree and, um, and an engineering degree. But, um, but, but to be fair to, to my mom and my, you know, growing up, like a lot of times, like I grew up in, in an office where she would have me draw while she was drawing. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I would tell her things. Like I remember telling her at one point, she asked me, like, do you like what I drew? And I said, uh, no, because it doesn't look like a whale. It's like, why, uh, <laughs> why would it need to look like a whale? I'm like, because it's so much more interesting than what you're drawing. <laughs> and I remember I drew a whale on top of her building. So I did have these moments like that um, with where I was really acquainted with T squares and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and the grid and the way to identify buildings graphically, um, so it was not a foreign language that came that parachuted from Mars um, right. in, in in my mind. But I can't say that it was something that I've always wanted to be doing. Um, it so happened. I think when I really when I went to architecture school, I realized that, you know, there are so many more possibilities to what an architect can do instead of becoming because my mom was mostly working with, you know, developers and Ruiz to design uh, buildings. And um, it was uh, it was a very different kind of practice than um, than anything I'm doing. But I do um, I do think that it has subconsciously influenced uh, I mean in many ways. I mean and you, you're setting up exactly what my next question was too, which is why I sort of asked about that that childhood experience is because it seems very quickly that you moved away from 
a sort of very traditional understanding of what it means to be an architect. I mean, like you know, the first thing you said is that you know you're not building things, and I'm I'm curious about that sort of transition. That's I, I'm always interested in these sort of alternative practices or these ways to call yourself an architect or a designer that are sort of outside of the kind of common definition. It sounds like that started to happen for you at maybe even before MIT a little bit, but as you were starting to read these texts, can you talk a little bit about that that sort of you know, that that kind of thinking about not being an architect, but being an architect, you know what I mean? Well, just to be, I, I did build things um, in the past, and I did go through phases of trying to be an, an architect proper, right? Like, or, mm. um, so I did go through several of these phases, but uh, just to be fair, I don't think of myself as an architect right Hmm. now i mean i i think i could build if um you know if somebody would come and like oh we need to build this and um i am designing installations and Mm -hmm. all of Mm -hmm. these things and one of the things that i um i i'm really good at for some strange reason is details um i'm really good at detailing and thinking of materials and Mm -hmm. all of that but uh at this point i'm not the traditional architect that um, I don't know about code and I'm not yeah, a yeah. architect, right? So um, it's it's more of uh, of a combined uh, research practice where I do my work manifests in installations, publications, mm-hmm. experimental projects, books, um, thinking about um, different ways of disseminating scholarship and. Uh, and distributing uh, scholarship. And, and um, sometimes I've called uh, my work an immersive type of scholarship, like how to inhabit mm. ideas about, um, about history, about theory, um, and make them visible to a wider audience. Um, I haven't come up with a perfect title on it, but I, I have to, you know, just to, to make a little parenthesis on I did go through a phase during my PhD where I worked as an architect with my partner at that time, where uh, we designed, we did renovations in New York and, and we built them and we did construction drawings and, mm. uh, you know, full sets of documents and uh, went to the city and got permits and uh, we, we kind of did that. And uh, even even before that, I was working for architects and I was project architects for different kinds of projects in in Greece before I went to MIT. Um, So I do have in my background proper architectural training. But in New York, what happened was um, the clients that we used to have were wealthy clients Mm. that uh, had a very specific way of operating in the world that was right at the crux of the financial crisis of 2008. And um, there was lots of capital. And I started to slowly develop a resistance to how money was spent or how to educate people on what is, I wouldn't say the word right is proper or appropriate, but um, they were just making a ship wood from other countries because they liked that wood, the wood arrived 
and then they didn't like it and they dumped it <laughs> in the alley. And, uh, yeah. you know, all of this embodied energy and all of this waste and the way that people that were privileged were dealing with waste and you facilitating that as an architect, it just seemed so unethical to me. Um, yeah. It was yeah. profitable. I It was profitable. And I sometimes was like, well, how the, why the hell did I stop doing it? And like, you know, I could make so much money. But um, it was just not what I wanted to do in my life. I wanted to serve others in, in, in some ways or to um, either curate pieces of knowledge through exhibitions or make statements or kind of work that would somehow create discourse um, and become mm-hmm. useful for others. And um, in no way did my renovations were useful to anyone other than themselves or to the cause of, um, let's say, them wanting to be an architectural digest. Um, so ethically, ethically, that that whole practice was um, problematic to me, to what I wanted to do in my life. Uh, yeah, Lydia, you're so great to talk to for a couple of reasons. One, <laughs> you set up everything that I wanted to talk to you about in that answer. <laughs> like, like I, all of my questions are now set up there. Um, but we're also very similar, and I don't mean to kind of like project my story onto you, but I very much relate to that story that you were just telling. And I, I worked as a graphic designer in Silicon Valley, uh, and it felt the same way. That it was, you know, how I was facilitating these, you know, very large sums of money for these very rich people to design certain things, you know, that were, you know, quote unquote, to make the world a better place. But, you know, being on the inside could see that wasn't doing it. And and I, I felt the same way that you're talking about working with these these clients. And that's why I went to went back to grad school because I was interested in you know, disseminating knowledge and curating all this stuff you're talking about is exactly my my experience in graphic design also. So was it was it after that that you then went to Princeton? No, I was um I was in Princeton at the time. Okay. Um, Uh, And it was just the moment that I have finished my general examinations and my coursework. And uh, usually like the way the PhD works is that uh, the students like they move out of Princeton after that and they just and they write their PhD or in touch with their advisor. And um, it was just a kind of connection with my partner at that time and his uh, desires and that kind of led me to that um, course in practice. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to me to also practice because I had I, I had the engineering knowledge. Like I, I did know all, all of these materials from MIT and um, I was like, oh, that could be interesting. But, um, but it, it was a journey, right? Like I quickly mm-hmm. realized that practice was not very creative, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it was like 90% logistics and 10% creativity. And, uh, but it's not even that my model was this kind of lone creator, um, like per the model of Anne Rind in the right, right. power drawer character. I don't know if you know this. Yeah. 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 Everybody knows the fountainhead, right? Yeah. But, um, you know, it, it wasn't that I had a vision and it had to be made. It was not that. It was, it was the processes of labor, logistics, waste, embodied mm-hmm. energy, 
which were kind of culturally problematic. And, you know, it was a problem for society to dump all of this waste. Mm -hmm. So during, I mean, I'll tell you an interesting story right now because um, this is a free flow conversation. (laughs) Yeah, go for Um, it. So uh, I met at that point, um, his name was Al Atara. And um, he was an older, he passed away right now um, because he was an older, incredible person that um, had a building in Brooklyn um, on 33 Flatbush Avenue. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he could have been a millionaire, but what he did was he had a truck and he collected all of these materials from the street, right? Like chairs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. curb alert. So he would go all over the city and collect all of these items. And um, because there were all of this waste of, you know, old sinks and kitchen that were almost like landmark elements, like they could be antiques, um, somebody recommended Al and he came and picked all of that stuff up. And um, I, I, I developed a friendship with him. We would take that stuff there. Um, my MIT thesis ended up being about material recycling. It was called Regenesis of Diverse Matter, Dross. Um, mm-hmm. So I was really interested in recycling and how we can re-envision processes of recycling. And um, he had this experimental community that he was building at uh, MET. That's what it was called, Metropolitan Exchange. Um, that was the, the, the name of the mm-hmm. space at on 33 Flatbush, and he brought all of these different kinds of designers um, to have a desk and work on their practices and their models. So mm-hmm. um, I found this community of people um, and a lot of other architects in New York that I know and I'm friends st- with still um, come from that space, from that experimental space that Al Atara founded. Um and uh, I, he was my, uh, let's say, support platform. Like the things that would be wasted from Park Avenue, he would come and pick them up. Mm. We, would, we would take them to Matt and other people would work on them. So uh, my, my soothing uh, was that it would create a kind of life cycle of materials in the city that, you know, these rich people would throw them away in, in Park Avenue. But he would pick them up um, and with, you know, with me and these other people, and they would become part of this community of young designers that were trying to work on offset goals, not directed, you know, not related right. to, to that moment. But, uh, but then, you know, that community had its own dynamic and energy and I became part of them and I started teaching in, in uh, New York and, I just didn't want to do these renovations anymore. <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling very well. It's it's such an interesting story too, for two reasons. Um, uh, I think it uh, that also I'm hearing the sort of seeds of so much of your research since then uh, being planted there or, or origins there or kind of you know germinating there. Um, but I want to talk to you about teaching for a second yeah. because you you've been teaching for you know almost alongside of your practice, you know, for most of your career. And I'm sorry that I keep kind of banging on this idea of like the architect who's not building, but like I said, I'm fascinated. I love that idea. Um, 
you know, maybe because I sort of feel like a designer who's <laughs> not designing <laughs> anymore. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about your students. Um, are they, and, and I don't mean for you to generalize here, but where are their interests? Are they interested in building and designing structures that will live in the world? And then with your research, whether that is closed worlds, which we can talk about in a bit, or, you know, uh, you've done like research on life on Mars and things like this, that is a little bit outside of that. How do you kind of teach students about these alternative practices that, that the idea of being an architect is much wider than we sometimes give it credit to be? Um, I'm, uh, I'm very lucky because I'm part of a school uh, that has incredible students. Mm. And um, I also have incredible colleagues at the Cooper Union. And I can't say that it's a school that's geared toward professionalization. Mm. Um, so a lot of the my colleagues and the students are interested in this kind of experimental work. Okay. Um, they're not interested necessarily in scholarship, which is another facet of my activities on you know writing a scholarly book, but they mm -hmm. are interested in uh, the way to disseminate that scholarship. So let's say I'm doing a kind of I'm I'm always focusing on themes and topics. So the project that I did for Mars, which was for a museum, um, it was a research project, it was a design project, but I also wrote uh, a bunch of papers related to to that. And it always, every project becomes its own world that generates different kinds of outputs. Mm -hmm. um, how that migrates to teaching, I think uh, it's, it's, it's very organic uh, because especially in the form of a studio, um, you really relay your own experiences in one way or form to, um, to and your own kind of knowledge pool to the students. And um, they, they are kind of sponges, they're absorbing that, but I'm also learning from them. And I can't say that I've encountered, at least at Cooper, um, you know, students are like, oh, I want to go work for um, SOM and I want to know this detail and yeah. um, I need to learn that. I think that um, students are very curious and they want to... Um, know as much as they possibly can on, on, on different fields. So I think teaching is a very prime, you know, it, it just, it, um, I learned from it. It, yeah. there hasn't been one day that I get home from teaching and I feel that I've been drained. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Whereas when I get out of, you know, bureaucratic meetings for <laughs> curating this and that and like I just feel drained emotionally but it's a very rewarding work because it's a dialogue and um my my teaching is not prescriptive I see it as a kind of collaboration a mm -hmm. deep collaboration I'm interested uh very genuinely in in what the students uh think and what they want and uh try to um, have a kind of active, like almost platonic dialogue um, with uh, with each and um, and every one of them. So it kind of teaching and doing that kind of experimental work is much more organically intertwined than you would think. It's not that I have to 
transfer or create a special kind of framework or context to um, mm-hmm. to make them interested in um, in in these kinds of activities. They want to be part of it. They want to be part of you know the Biennale that I'm curating or um, right. or, or or this or that. They're interested, like I have a student doing her thesis on mushrooms, like she's Mm. obsessed with mushrooms since for a year. And she's like bringing like different kits and growing mushrooms and photographing them. And these are the kinds of students I work with. And uh, just to see um, somebody that's so committed to a project and engaged and interested in observing and learning, um, you know, curiosity is the deepest uh, form of intelligence, I think. I'm interested in that sort of the influence of each sides of these. So like the research and the scholarship and then being in the classroom when they talk to each other. And so are you, are you working on projects typically that you then sort of turn into studio classes or, or do things sort of bubble up in the studio that become bigger projects? How do you kind of, um, you know, how do you kind of think about that? And how do you start to kind of, you know, organize these different projects that you're working on around these, these themes? Definitely that happens, the kind of clustering, mm-hmm. but uh, not in a master plan. <laughs> right. So it's not that, um, let's say I would, um, I'll just give you an example. It's not that I would say, okay, I have a Biennale and this section needs to be produced by students, go students work. No, that's mm. not what happens. Mm-hmm. It is more because I, I also see a kind of ethical commitment to teaching where, uh, you, you really have to allow them the space to develop their interests and, to, to teach them teachable content, not to use them as tools to produce an installation. So I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've never done that. Uh, but what I have done is, for example, Closed Worlds was a seminar right. that uh, in, in different formats, uh, in different universities, which allowed me the, the, the luxury to read every week uh, different kinds of texts for the students to read and like we had discussions on them. So it almost creates like an underlayer for which research could be built upon. But it's never the actual product of, right. of the research. It's always, I always see teaching related to research. They're completely inseparable and intertwining. And I think that it's really healthy if I'm interested in a subject to create a seminar and uh, to read more about it and have the students read more about it and have all of these discussions. That helps me tremendously to hear what they think. And it also interests them because if I'm researching on it, I know a lot about it and I can teach them um, about that subject. But it is never with the scope of the product. Um you see, you see what I mean? So yeah. for the Tallinn Biennial, I've also done a course, which was a seminar. I'm not really using any of the seminar products in the Biennial, but it helped me to, uh, and, and the students, like to ask important questions about the yep. topic and to understand fundamental parameters of how curatorially I would organize work. 
Yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's exactly kind of what I was interested in. It's almost like you're using the the classes, you're using the seminar almost as like a, a beta test, you know, a way to kind of, uh, you know, test out these ideas, see what happens, uh, as opposed to using them, you know, as generating a, a product or something. Uh, that's, that's, that's really interesting. I like that you brought up the, the closed worlds project. I think this is a good way to kind of talk about that because, you know, even just in this conversation, it's, you it's interesting how many sort of closed world metaphors you're using in describing your own work. Um, and, and it, <laughs> yeah, and it kind of encompasses everything. And it's where I first came across your work was the, the architecture of closed worlds when it was an exhibition. Um, and so I have, I have two questions kind of to start specifically about the, that project and that series of projects. Um, for people who maybe are not familiar with it, can you kind of just kind of describe the architecture of closed worlds and what a closed world is? It really was, um, I mean, I'm, I'm going to first uh, read, and this is the only time I'll do that, I promise. <laughs> okay. I out loud. But I think that it does explain some things, right? Because um, one of the criticisms that I've received was that it's too expansive. Closed mm. world has like a, a, a technical meaning in cybernetics, like in ecology discourses and so forth. And I included in my, in the way that I was conceptualizing this topic and I was approaching it in the book and the exhibition, um, everything, it, it ranged from submarines to space capsules to office buildings malls (laughs) apparatuses uh countercultural domestic environments and i started when i was describing that i was like okay so what do all of these things have in common each was conceived as a closed system a self-sustaining physical environment demarcated from its surroundings by a boundary that does not allow for the transfer of matter or energy So the idea was to understand the production of environments as separated from the exterior world, the effluence of the seasons of, um, and the, uh, the kind of, uh, conception of architecture as the production of a piece of nature on its own. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in that ambition, which is an ambition that is entirely um, intertwined with the history of utopia, Um, you have many different ways in which all of these uh, systems have manifest spatially. But you also have many, many kind of um, technical um, ideas like self-sufficiency, autonomy, um, energy autonomy, material recycling, so how to sustain an environment without being connected with a grid of supplies, like off-grid mm. systems. But I think that um, one of the things that I was trying to show is the extreme separation of inside, inside outside, and uh, the understanding of architectural production through the kind of production of the reproduction of pieces of nature. Mm. And um you know that uh, to rewrite basically the history of architecture design and engineering in the in the 20th century because in in many ways and and forms um if you look at uh the last maybe 30 or 40 years to the way that buildings are canonically detailed and produced 
right? A lot of them don't have operable windows. Mm-hmm. They have very little exchange. They're sealed. They create their own kind of atmospheric content inside sealed borders. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the issue of climatic control is incredibly important and generates its own kind of interior landscape, uh, both culturally and technically. And it was a project to address that, right? It, the ambition was really big, right? How can one rewrite the history of 20th century architecture, uh, design and engineering, uh, if you look at it, um, not from a kind of formal perspective, but through the production of, of closure, of closure, and uh, through the understanding that architecture or built environment is a reconstruction of the world in time and in space um, that, um, that, that has its kind of uh, total reconstructed environment, its own materials, and it, um, as I said, uh, produces uh, nature on its own. And as part of that, I was interested in a lot of different facets that are linked very strongly to uh, what the the cliche that we call sustainability, um, which is, you know, ideas of autonomous living, um, ideas of uh, recycling, um, synthetic naturalism, the production of uh, new pieces of artificial natures, and uh, the kind of transference of uh, natural principles of metabolism and so forth from, you know, natural system from wilderness to um, architecture. So I can I can see that the premise is um, is fairly expanded, uh, but I think the selection of projects, like I did one uh, one of the limitations was, was that all the projects needed to be real. So um, they needed to be built, not just concepts. And uh, I had building reports for all of the archive that I constructed. So to see how they worked, how they didn't work, and to get a sense of what were the issues um, in terms of the life cycle of these environments that that were addressed and, and created. Um, so and, and also it the 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 closure was was really important the idea of closure of perimeter something that um, is either looping within itself and its own ecosystems or that that is energetically self sufficient or um, is um, is somehow kind of restrained from the, you know detached from the exterior world and operates as a kind of self identified unit. I think it's really easy to see that project and then the case studies as experimental alternative, you know, all of this stuff. But if you, you know, look at it, it's like you said, it is really speaking to, you know, the history of, of architectural practice and building and that all of these are real. And it goes back to the very beginning of this conversation of sort of you wanting to connect uh, sort of, you know, building and materials with the theory I think is all sort of, you know, embedded in that project. Um, I'm I'm curious to go back to something you said earlier about your interest in disseminating knowledge and sort of different ways of publishing. And again, I think Architecture of Closed Worlds is a good case study here in that it was a seminar, it was an exhibition, it was a book. Can you talk about how you think about distribution of your research and 
how you think about how these things go out into the world and kind of what you want to do with each sort of medium or format? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's extremely important because um, I'm. I think that uh, diversity in the ways that one may distribute content is extraordinarily important. And uh, one of the things that I'm entirely against is the uh, the kind of really small audience of uh, scholarly work. Um, which, you know, and, and it's not, I, I mean, I, I do scholarly work. I am a scholar in, in the sense that I write with, you know, all of the footnotes. I do archival research. I, I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, I love it. But what I don't love is, you know, five people reading it <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah. um, and having that impact in, 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 in the world because one of the things that I'm trying to do when I'm writing, and I love the way that scholarship is produced, is um, how to kind of relate these kind of questions that you find in an archive of this rare document to contemporary questions that all of us have today um, that, you know, a younger generation has or the people that don't necessarily know how to write in proper footnotes and citations and mm-hmm. captions and, and, and so forth. So um, doing all of these alternative platforms of disseminating material requires not just another medium. It's not like that. It's not just that you have to do drawings in addition to writing, but it's also you have to use a different kind of language. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and this is something that I'm very um familiar with in writing texts for the Biennale that I'm curating right now, where I'm, I'm having this conversation with the, the kind of press people where they would say, oh, this is too, too dense and complicated for the audience. And I'm like, okay, I'll have to make it more clear. But what is the line between making it more clear and making yeah. it populistic or dumb? Yeah, uh, yeah. Keeping the level of intelligence and criticality, but still addressing a wider audience. So that's a process of translation, right? How to speak to different kinds of audiences, but it's also they need to see different outputs. Um, you know, stu- so for me, making images, making open source media platforms like uh, websites uh, is, is, is very, very important. And um, a lot of people, when they see my visual work, let's say, they, they read some of the text that goes along with it. So I think it's extraordinarily important to have different kinds of output and to reach different kind of audiences. But again, not all academics are interested in that. This is just something that I'm interested in and uh, something that I find important, not because I want to have more people look at it, but because if I have a thought that I want to share that is important, then I know that if I use another medium, it will be more accessible to others. Yeah. And, um, before Closed Worlds, um, I mean, this is not something that you might find online, but I, I did this website called EcoRedux, mm. um, which was online and it, it won a number of awards. It, it's older, but um, it won like a Webby Award and... 
yeah. uh, some other, I don't remember the names, but, you know, like a bunch of digital platform awards. And um, it really was me getting like to archives, collecting all of these experiments that nobody knew about, writing about each of them and curating them in a kind of platform for everybody to see. Mm. And then I asked architects to look at these experiments from the 60s and redraw them. And I also found some of them and interviewed them like you do right now. And I linked with the audio. So it had a lot of material. Um, the website is no longer there, but that was the first instance where uh, multimedia uh, scholarship uh, became an important aspect of what I thought I would be doing. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's exactly why I'm kind of drawn to your work also, because those are the questions that animate my work is is thinking about taking these ideas and positioning them to to different audiences, making them accessible to different audiences without dumbing it down, which I think is like a key point in what you said. I have two more sort of quick questions uh, to wrap up. One of them builds on kind of what you're just talking about. And I, I want to connect it to the biennial that you're working on, too, because I do want to talk about, you know, your current work. Um, but how does thinking about these mediums does that change your process at all? Does that change how you think about researching, how you think about writing, the output of this biennial that you're working on? How does how does the the output then change the process if it does at all? Yeah, well, it's the same thing, the same kind of intention happened in the biennial as well, like the diversity of different kinds of outputs and and mediums. And um, it was it was really important to me and my partner, Areti Markopoulou, with whom I'm co-curating the Tallinn Architecture Biennial. Um, it was very important to us to not have only one kind of output, mm. but to have an open call to attract a young audience and to have a kind of wide uh, invitation of, uh, you know, 100 people that we invited to do one drawing. And, uh, and then we have our invited participation, but I think uh, our intention was to approach the topic uh, without exclusivity of the curator that asks five people to, uh, to create uh, this work, but to really engage entire communities to, uh, to produce ideas. Now, how it changed the nature and the content of a topic, um, I think a lot. Um, at the very, uh, the kind of work, and this is just starting to happen because we're just at the point where we're receiving certain submissions, but seeing what the participants bring to the table necessarily makes you question the nature of your own questions, um, and how you posited them, uh, at, at, at the very beginning. Um, so it's it's a kind of cyclical process, right? Uh, like a feedback process, um, for sure. But uh, we're we're just at the very tipping point right now of starting to experiencing that um, in the biennial. But the intention is uh, is is very much, um, you know, the diversification of all of these different kinds of uh, outputs. I think that's a good way to wrap up. So I'm going to ask you the last question that I use to end all of these. I'm curious what you're reading right now. I have this book called Decolonizing Nature by TJ Demos. 
because, um, you know, a lot of my work stems from environmental politics, yeah. environmental history. And uh, because all of these questions of decolonization are so pressing in academia, um, I was very interesting to read um, a bunch of these um um, you know, books that address this topic. So this was one of them, uh, TJ Demos. Another one was uh, a book of Arturo Escobar, mm-hmm. um, which was also about, um, uh, it was about the pluriverse. Yeah. Um, so these are two things, but I'm also reading, I'm seeing other things. I'm reading 19th century um, ecology and biology and, and the kind of origins of ecological discourse. Mm. Uh, because I'm writing a book um, on the history of ecological design. And, oh wow! Um, I yeah, that's gonna that's gonna come out. I think in November or December of 22. Okay. Um. So I'm you know it it's kind of a encyclopedia. I would call it an unfinished encyclopedia. Not mm. uh not a real encyclopedia. There is no such thing in my mind as an encyclopedia that encompasses everything. But um, I, you know, it, it's it's a book that I started writing this topic on uh, the history of ecological design for Oxford English Encyclopedia, and it was really uh, very well received and read by a lot of people. And I was proposed to write a book on expanding that topic on different on parallel histories of ecological design and unfinished encyclopedia. So I'm writing that book, which starts from the 19th century, and I'm trying to finish that chapter on acclimatization in the 19th century. So I have Biology in the 19th Century by William Coleman and The Background of Ecology by Robert McIntosh. None of these are architecture books, by the way, as you can see. They're all kind of environmental history books. Um, And, uh, you know, I do read architecture books as well, but I'm um, inspired by uh, these kinds of um, other books. All my favorite answers to that question, I ask everybody that question. The best answers are always the ones that are not architecture and design related because they're usually the ones that I'm unfamiliar with. Uh, and so I, I always you know, get some new new additions to my shelf. I thought this was such a great conversation. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for being so kind. And uh, it was really an enjoyable conversation. It didn't feel like work. I feel <laughs> like Good. less arrows are pointed on my head right now. This episode was recorded on February 11th, 2022. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.